Welcome to Too Much Movie, a podcast that gets lost in those movies that are too much in the best possible way. In prison, I learned that everything in this world, including podcasts, operates not on a reality, but the perception of reality. Think of it, Marty. Nobody people wondering about what Rob Belushi or Chris Candy think about 90s movies that are too much. Hearing Stephen Tobolowsky talk about sneakers, isn't that what we always wanted? Guys, you haven't gone crazy, have you? Have you? Who else is going to change the podcasting world, Marty? Greenpeace? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Too Much Movie. Yes, the show where we just talk about movies that are simply too much. So my first co-host at age 19 was caught breaking into the Oakland City School District to change his grades. That (laughs) is the lovely Rob Belushi. Hello, Rob. How are you? May I use your John? (laughs) (laughs) We've also got a man who's had a little problem with the phone company. 62 (laughs) counts, in fact. This is Chris Candy. Hello, Chris. (laughs) How are we doing, everybody? How are we doing? And in 1987, I was terminated from the CIA. I am Blake Howard. And today we are talking about... 1992 Phil Alden Robinson masterpiece sneakers and it simply would not be the show that it could be if we weren't talking to the one and only Werner Brandis himself the man whose (laughs) Tobolowsky Files podcast is just so seminal and if you haven't listened to it if you've never listened to any other movie podcast in the world you need to listen to it simply it's such a huge inspiration for me and everything I've ever done at One Heat Minute Productions I gush frequently about his collaborator Dave Chen and that show but I mean Stephen Tobolowsky welcome to Too Much Movie Holy Shamoli. it is great to talk to you Oh my it's, God. It's, it's good to be here. My voice is my passport. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Say you passport. Are <laughs> <laughs> yes. We are verified. This is verified. Look, um, well, I can go oh, home now. <laughs> yeah. We're done. Thank you. Um, so firstly, for anyone uh, who I, I can't imagine that you're listening to this, if you haven't seen sneakers, but if you hadn't, it really is one of the first post-Cold War movies. Now, rather than hearing me stumble over the plot synopses, here is the trailer. This LTX-71 concealable mic is part of the same system that NASA used when they faked the Apollo moon landings. Worked for them, shouldn't give us too many problems. They break and enter. How are we doing? Cause and position on the fire escape. Mother's in the cable vault. Trying to sever master circuit. But they're not thieves. We're getting too old for this. They know your secrets, but they're not spies. It's gotta be there somewhere. What's he doing? He's like a really. Mr. Bishop, do you mind if I take a look? Carl, grow up. I give you something to work, baby. So people hire you to break into their places to make sure no one can break into their places? It's a living. Not a very good one. Now, they've got a new client. National Security Agency. I don't work for the government. Relax, Marty. It's just everybody on your team has had some sort of problem in their past. Now, what are you saying? The NSA killed Kennedy? No, they shot him, but they didn't kill him. He's still alive. They may not want the job. Liz, I need your help. I will not be dragged back into your world. But they don't have a choice. We don't want to bust you. We want to hire you. We're the good guys, Marty. Can't tell you what a relief that is, Dick. Your job is to find that little black box. We got it. Holy cow. What the hell is this? That's 
a war out there, old friend. A world war. Oh, my God. How is this possible? It's not about who's got the most bullets. It's about who controls the information. Anybody want to shut down the Federal Reserve? Hey, don't wait, screw wait, around wait, with wait, that wait, thing. It's all about the information. So it's a codebreaker? No. It's the codebreaker. Battle stations, do you have the item? Can you guarantee my safety? Where is the item? Can you guarantee my safety? Martin, you've got trouble. Here, maybe this might help. Old buddy of mine who was in Desert Storm sent it to me. Of course, he was on the other side. Now give me the bomb! Martin! I'm an excellent marksman, woman. I'm Carl. There's a fire escape at the end of the North Corridor. Go directly north, directly north, about 30 yards. Five seconds. Hang up, fish! Hang up, they've almost got us! And if you haven't seen it, it's a true unheralded masterpiece. And uh, and we're so thrilled because too much movies brief is to talk about movies that are simply too much. And we're here. But Stephen, can you please just tell us, Phil Alden Robinson in his commentaries and recent interviews talked about the rehearsals of this movie. And he frequently gushed about you. And one of the <laughs> things that he gushed about was Stephen Tobolowsky. He's like, he came up with that dirtbag line of like, I, would you have breakfast with me? Shall I? Shall I phone you or nudge phone you? Phone you or nudge you? <laughs> and phone you or nudge you with Mary Don? He's like, and it made us all kill ourselves laughing because he just came up with it on the fly that we had to have it in the movie. Please tell us everything you can about your experience on this incredible thing. Wow, I, I'll take it from the beginning because it was kind of this was a unique movie experience for me. I my movie career just kind of gotten started. I've done. Smart. I did like Mississippi Burning before this, which was a great role in a great movie. Uh, did Groundhog's Day, which was going to turn out to be just classic. Yes. Uh, but I felt like my movie career was going up. And my agent sends me this script called Sneakers, and I was insulted. <laughs> I was insulted. I thought like, you know, I'm suddenly doing some sort of Disney bubblegum movie. You know, what? what are we doing here? And, and I said to my agent, listen, listen, uh, I thought now I'd be ready for some good projects. <laughs> and now I see this script sneakers and they wanted me to go in and meet with Phil uh, the next day. And they said, well, why don't you just read the script and then let us know if you want to go in. So I sat down filled with fury and I thought, I'm going to read this, this awful script called sneakers. You know, they'll probably have a talking cat in it or something, you know. <laughs> a witch or something and i'm reading this script and i was so thoroughly chastened uh i remember i said to my wife i said oh my god now i know what 10 million dollars reads like yes and back then 10 million dollars would have been a lot of money of course sneakers made a lot more than that yeah it was a huge hit i called my agent the next day i said i am so sorry i am so sorry this is one of the greatest scripts i've ever read in my life I said, not only take back everything I rewind, take back everything I said yesterday. I am so thrilled to go in and read read this uh, part, Werner Brandis uh, for Phil. So I went in and I guess I got the part. Thank goodness. Uh, the next stage, I'll jump ahead, you know. So I'm reading and I'm going over it. Is the table read? 
The wow. first table read. I go in there. I'm sitting next to Sidney Poitier, <laughs> sitting right next to me. And there's River Phoenix. There's Robert Redford. There's Mary McDonald. There's Ben Kingsley, <laughs> James Earl Jones <laughs> sitting at this table. And I'm going like, did I just like die and like I'm in kind of actor heaven? I mean, what is it? And Sidney Poitier, such a handsome man. And yeah. he, he was enormous. He was huge and absolutely gorgeous and such a great actor. Oh my God. And I'm sitting at the table read and I was so stunned. I was not, <laughs> now I felt like, boy, now, oh gosh. Now I felt like I was at a, the beggar at the banquet. <laughs> And I'm going, this is absolutely magnificent. We, we, um, gosh, we got, I, th I thought I want to look really good. To, now, Werner Brandis, my first insulting thing that I felt about Werner Brandis was he only comes in on page 68. And, you know, I was at the stage in my career where I'm looking at pages and counting the number of lines. Look at that. Page right. one, Go page away. two. Right. What happened to page 12? What happened? It's page 68. No Werner Brandis. And then Werner Brandis comes out. And I go like, oh, my God. What a fantastic role. So I was saying to my wife, baby, what I have to do, especially for tonight, because the first scene I did was with Mary at the club. Yes. Where, where I take her out to dinner, the date. And right. I said, I think I'm going to get contact lenses because it's my chance to look good in this movie <laughs> instead of with glasses. I'm going to get contact lenses. Wow. So, that is such a touch. And it was such a mistake to wear contact lenses the first day of the first moment you're going to shoot something. Oh, I didn't no. realize there was, a, there was a break-in period. So I just said to Phil, I said to Phil, look, got these contact lenses here. Uh, he, he said, just go with it, man. Just go with it. Just do what you're going to do. And, and he said, just do whatever you want uh, to enchant Mary. Just do whatever you want. Right. And, and I said, okay. Now, one thing that gave me encouragement was at the time, one of my best friends ever in the world, theater friend Robert Darnell, who is no longer with us. And I don't know if Bob had passed away at this time, but his son, uh, Matthew, was always wanted to be a stunt man. So I'm showing up at this restaurant, and Matthew Darnell was the kid doing the kung fu stuff in the background, in deep background. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and it was on, the one deep, of his, on the karate studio. That's the karate studio. Ah, that was yeah. him. He had been like a Green Beret or something in the military, but he wanted to be. So there I am with my best friend's son, and I suddenly felt this kinship. And I felt like, well, with Matt here, you know, everything's going to be great. Great. And and we, we had a wonderful time doing that scene. And after that scene. Great scene, too. Oh my Great scene. So many we'll bits. get into it. I'll get into that scene. We, but we can't so much, so many that's, bits. Yeah, I'll, we can't yeah. skip like just the fact that the way your mouth's open while you're putting the lens in, she immediately sits down and you just go, okay, and you walk away straight <laughs> to the buffet. Like <laughs> you go to it's, the dumb dim sum. It's, yeah. it's the greatest, like, Oh my God, look at this guy. He's going to be so shocked at how beautiful she is. And it's such a great 180 of like, no, he's just there for the tips. And I, I was such a fan of hers. Yes. You know, I was such a huge fan oh of hers. God. I thought she was like, you know, so brilliant, you know, uh, 
and Dances with Wolves. I mean, I saw that movie so many times just to see her. And oh, what a performance. And after that scene, I, I don't want to jump around too much, but I'll move it ahead. After that scene, Phil said, okay, this is the deal. Mary is, is kind of very professional and she's very straight laced. And you guys are gonna have several scenes together. So from now on, I just want you to do whatever you can do to see if you can make her laugh. It was like a 007 thing. It was like giving me the license to kill. So it's like when we have the date in, our, in my room and I'm making dinner, we did like 43 takes. And on every take, I did something completely stupid and different. So the whole thing like, you know, uh, you know, the healthiest thing in the world, bottom of a monkey cage. Yes. You, you know, bottom That's of a monkey you. cage. That's all that you. All, not only me, but me on one take. So right. like I didn't repeat any of the stuff. So, you know, <laughs> bottom of a monkey, you know, and Mary is just there because she learned the script. So she didn't know when her cue was. So she has this deer in the headlights look uh. during the thing like, get me out of here. And, and Phil was, we were on like the second floor. We were on one and a half floors. We were in this apartment and Phil was about 10 feet down. I'd stick my head out the window and go, do another one, do another <laughs> one. And so I, I did one, oh, I'm just, I'm gonna pound these breasts if you don't mind. You know, or what, you know I, I, just stupid <laughs> sure. stuff. And the dog in there, my beloved dog um, was the pooch. Oh. And so I named the dog Pooch. You know, I should sue people for that. <laughs> pooch was my dog. And so uh, I did have a great deal of affection for the Pooch. But for me being, uh, I'll, I'll mention two, two more moments, then I'll toss, toss it back to you guys. Two things, the gift for me about this, two and a half things. Thing number one, Ben Kingsley. Oh, sure. Uh, I, Ben Kingsley is the greatest storyteller in the world. He is hilarious. He is not only, and you go, Ben Kingsley, hilarious. Like in tears, hilarious. Every day when we would be in makeup, Ben Kingsley was telling stories of doing Shakespeare and everything in the countryside of England and all the terrible performances that he went through and the horrible things that happened to him absolutely splendid storyteller and he kept us wrapped in the in the makeup room every morning we were in there and then when he wasn't shooting he'd take his shirt off and get in his swim trunks and lay on a a kind of a chair out in the sun outside of uh, <laughs> outside of his dressing room to get that california sun ben kingsley was for me th the gift of that movie uh one of the second gifts of that movie was uh, James Earl Jones, mm. is that uh, James Earl Jones, when I was a student at SMU, came to SMU, and he was rehearsing the Broadway play of Mice and Men, and they were rehearsing at SMU. And so as students, we were going in watching the great James Earl Jones doing this, getting ready for Broadway. So I did that, with with James Earl Jones. Later on, I did uh, Radioland Murders. And Radioland Murders, uh, let's see, George Lucas, 
George Lucas, uh, well, he was the producer of that, but he directed one of the scenes we were in. And George had invited me to his 50th birthday party and James Earl Jones was there. And so I was able to go up and say, you don't remember me, but when I was a junior in college, anyway, we also worked together in Thailand on a show. And I was there under this airplane in the middle of the jungle with James Earl Jones. You don't remember me. But, (laughs) But when we did sneakers, I'm saying, James, Stephen Tobolowsky. <laughs> I don't know if you remember me from SMU. And he goes, God, every time I see you, I just feel older and older <laughs> and older. And, and the greatest, most hilarious moment I saw is we were shooting on the Universal set, Universal lot. And there on the Universal lot, they have tours. And so they have the shark from Jaws, and they have the coat, the car from Columbo, and the bicycle from E.T. And these little carts go through with all the tourists on it with their little snappy cameras, because they didn't have phones back then, just a little instamatic. (laughs) And the guys had their pattern going, and right over here is Bruce, the shark from Jaws. Oh, it looks like there's Columbo's car over there. (laughs) And, And they had this pattern that they did. Well, they called... Robert Redford, James Earl Jones, and me to the set. So we're doing the bit where we're inside SeaTechus, where we're inside the place and Ben Kingsley's chasing us and all that. And my dressing room is on one side of the road. James Earl Jones and Robert Redford are on the far side of the road. And they come talking to one another, walking across the road, just as this cart is coming up (laughs) and it stops. And James Earl Jones and Robert Redford are walking in front of the cart, and the guy doesn't realize the two of the biggest, most famous actors in the world are crossing in front of this universal cart, and he still does his patter. And I'm standing over on the side watching, just hearing this, and over there is Bruce, the shark from Jaws up there. Oh, and it looks like that's Columbo's car. And I'm watching James Earl Jones and Robert Redford walk in front of that tour bus, and no one takes a picture of them. They don't even know it's them. And I realize, you know, that's the way miracles are in Hollywood. You know, they happen, and you're looking for Columbo's coat, and you miss James Earl Jones. And that's hey, what this movie that's beautiful. was. Yeah. That, so, I am just like those stars. <laughs> <laughs> they are just like me. <laughs> hey, those are beautiful stories. I, I'm a big fan of yours. And gosh, hearing those stories, that, that the way we meet you in the film is putting in that contact lens. And it's such a great... Uh, character trait to be introduced to like this man who is 180 IQ can't see the thing in front of us right that's a theme of the film the sleight of hand all the time things are not what they what they seem um and you know Stephen I was 12 when this movie came out and I remember you so vividly from that time because you did three film you did four films in 92 93 and maybe more but the three like in a row that I never, I'll never forget you is of course, sneakers, single white female and Groundhog yes. Day. Yeah. And there, there are three kind of meditations on different versions of this man who is uh, like a, in single white female, a surprise scoundrel. 
in sneakers, you know, a, someone who's a bit too smart for their own good. And then like a lovable, uh, friendly, you know, but kind of irritating Ned Ryerson. <laughs> and so, so I get, I just want to comment that there are three brilliant performances that are indelible on the time for me. And also about uh, Werner Brandes in particular, you know, you, you play that part with so much humanity and thinking back to when you're reading the film, right? The, the, the things about your character that are apparent from the script are the 180 IQ. I always thought my voice sounded nasal and pinched, you know, <laughs> the computer match that guy with her. Like oh, they're not yeah. the most flowery characterizations. And I always find that you so deftly play the man and you give the fun of those qualities. But even, even though it's bits, 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 bits throughout your whole thing, like it's a very grounded performance where you don't lean in, you don't judge the character. And I guess I'm just curious when you read all those things, um, how did you approach the role to, to bring such a uh, recognizable human being with the the foibles of intellectual arrogance but also social blindness you know well i think every actor basically just uses themselves and and i had a great acting teacher ed k martin who happens to be the same acting teacher that holly hunter had mm. many people have have, you, you wander through this world and think, oh, I had Ed K. Martin too. And Ed K. Martin said something that stuck with me for my lifetime, and that is when you act, you only ask two questions. What is my greatest hope and what is my greatest fear? And by looking at the script, you figure what is your greatest hope and fear, and that creates a tightrope that all other questions come off of. Right. And, and so when you do that, you can't help but just apply yourself to whatever, you know, also Stanislavski said, never bring the part down to you, always go up to the part. Oh. Uh, and, and so I always thought like, well, with Werner Brandis, I've had plenty of time in high school where I felt like, you know, I never could get a date. And once, you know, I did get a date with the most popular girl, <laughs> and it didn't it didn't work out well right but you know was I, her name Ann Hearn no <laughs> that's a whole different story that's a whole different a story fish. for another podcast oh my god oh my god yeah we're just I think Ann and I have been together now what 35 years oh, 35 congratulations years. oh my god bless. congratulations you know we've oh boy but wow hmm, what a road that's been uh, and and all good, but but I know like not to make fun of Werner because when I was growing up in college and in high school, I know about being lonely. Yeah, right. I know about like thinking, you know, I could be interesting to a woman. You know, if we went out to dinner, I'm I'm not a pariah. Uh, you know, give me a chance. Just give me a chance, and. Mm. But at the same time, you know, people are good at what they do a lot. You know, people who would date a lot were good at being on dates. Mm -hmm. And I figure Werner is not a guy 
who's been on dates a lot because he has other passions because of his intellect, because of his voice recognition thing that he's been working on. Because of his gene, genius is a cruel taskmaster, man. Yeah. You know, if you're a genius at something, it, it drives you. I was uh, talking to a, a cello player uh, who escaped the Soviet Union. He was taught by Rostopovich, and, and he and his wife escaped the Soviet Union. And I said, and now he's a famous cello player and symphony orchestras and soloist and all this kind of stuff. And I said, how, how did you learn to play the cello like you play the cello? And he said, because when I was a little boy, I, I could do it, and my father would wake me up at three in the morning and say, play your piece now. Because if you play your piece at three in the morning, you could play it any time. Play it now. Play it. Mm. And when you have this kind of, like Werner, like any, any, any of these kind of characters, like the, the intellectual characters I played, is you realize that that passion wakes you up in the middle of the night. It dominates your life. And so it doesn't matter how much you want to be like Brad Pitt. You know, you're not going to be Brad. <laughs> you, you know, you're not going to be. And so you don't have to make fun of yourself, and you don't have to overplay it. I remember I threw in that line. My, my voice was kind of nasal and pinched. Okay. Wow. Because it wasn't written in. It was, the line was, Mary's line was in the script. You have, like, such a lovely voice. But a woman did tell me, you know, she says, oh, it's so funny. It's so funny when you talk because your voice is so nasal and pinched. Oh. And I go, really? And, and, you know, it hurt me so much on a real date. So I just kind of threw that in, in the scene there. And, and you know, Phil goes like, great, keep it. The, the idea of genius, I, I, you had one behavior, and, and then I'll kick it to Chris. That was like, it definitely plays like a, a window into that genius of Brandis when you go into your world right with the dog you do this weird very specific <laughs> finger thing that is so like acute and almost diabolical and i'm like oh i see the man at work and i see why he's so good with just that one small behavior that for me like i my friends and i you know when we were in our teenage years we'd always be like when we want to listen <laughs> I, I always felt one of my advantages as an actor in, in this town in particular is like I always used to joke with Ann about is people don't really know where I live. And right. I don't mean where I live here because <laughs> now it's on Zoom. But, <laughs> but people don't know where I live. You know, like I, a lot of people come out to L.A. and they want to be famous or they want to be rich and all that. I don't live in those two places. Mm. You know, that isn't what I ever wanted. And and because people didn't know where I lived, they didn't know how necessarily to eliminate me or to crush me or whatever. And the thing that I'd like to find in roles, and like with Werner Brandis at that moment, like with the dog, that's where I live. Yeah. Mm. The pooch and that dog and what I created is where I live. And when she went... The dog knocks the purse off, and I go oh, in there. Pooch. Oh, yeah. Oh, and then, and then I see this, and then it's like, mm -hmm. now you're messing with where I live. Yeah. 
Uh-huh. And, and yeah, you know, at that, to- that you know, at that point, you see where Werner Brandis isn't like a goofball, but it's like you're one of those people who who are playing me. Yes. I don't like being played. And so, without being overt about it, it's it's where you live. If you could find where you live as a character, as a person, where you live, that's important to know. Yeah, no, I, I was just, I was so curious as I was rewatching the film. And um, yeah, I agree with everything what everyone's been saying too, because it, it, your character is one of those parts that, mind the Santa Ana winds here. Um, it, it's one of those characters that does come out towards the end of the film, but it's so grateful when it happens. I mean, I'll never look at a, a, a toothpaste the same without thinking of your character. How you fold when, it. When, when she mentions that you, this is a man who is meticulous and, and goes into the whole uh, diatribe of your character through the trash is, is such a memorable scene for me. And, um, and I just, I was curious too, leading into that. <laughs> I mean, I still do. I still think of that scene with when I look at toothpaste. Um, you know, what was the scope? Because the film talks so much about current tech of the 90s. You know, it's very, very, um, it, it's interesting because as I was rewatching this film, it, it, it focuses a lot on a lot of things we're still dealing with today, you know, in regards to privacy and data and all of these things. And it's very before its time in that matter. But for your character to really be in the driver's seat of, kind of showing us um, someone who works at C-Tech at a corporate company like that. What was this, the, the scene like for you to pull from in regards to just outside sources? You know, I, I was thinking like your character is the early tech bro, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like who's going on online dating sites and, 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 and going to the, you know, hot restaurant in Chinatown. It's, it's so of now, but what was it like in, I guess, 92 is when you're filming this or 93? I, I think the, the, and I talked to to Phil with this le- uh, later. We we bumped into each other something like ten years after. Well, when we we shot this in what ninety one something like yeah, that. It was okay, ninety one something like there. Yeah. So I saw Phil. I guess, a couple times right in a row. I saw him in Los Angeles at a con- we were at a concert together. And this is, let's say, sneakers have been out now 10 years, in the world 10 years. When we shot those scenes, I was thinking C-Tech astronomy and all that kind of stuff, no more secrets, and all that was kind of science fiction. Imagine a code to just beat all codes. Um, 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 You know, it seemed like it was a tech science fiction kind of movie. As the 10 years went by, you saw, oh, (laughs) <laughs> this was a fortune-telling film. Yes. And I went to Phil, and I ran into him at intermission, and I said, I got a question. How is this script so good? <laughs> How is the script so good? And he said, well, Stephen, it was good because it took a long time to write it. Mm-hmm. And, years. you know, we thought about everything. And apparently, I don't want to speak for Phil. This is this is just kind of, you know, he had three versions of the script. He had one version of the script, which was just everything we need to tell the story. Then we have one version of the script, which is everything we wanted to know in this story, everything. And they ended up with a hybrid. And Phil told me that my part was in this long version, 
of the script. And then they kept it. And before we started, I was talking about, and I mentioned this to Phil at the intermission of uh, the, the concert, Sid Field's book on screenwriting, which is a classic book on how a movie is to be structured. And in fact, I think there was, the writers were joking at the time that Sid Field says, you violate this, this protocol at your own hazard. Mm. You know, that you have page one to 24 is act one, 24, 24, 25 to 74 is act two. And then you have act three, you have a one minute section at the beginning of act one where you pretty much set up your main characters and a situation. And at the end of the movie, you have to have a completion, a character completion, a plot completion, and a spiritual completion. And if you do that, you're going to have a successful film. Sneakers does not follow this formula at all. And I'm going like, Phil, you went against everything in Sid Field's book, including like in introducing Werner Brandis on page 68, which completely <laughs> is this character out of nowhere. But I'm sorry to interrupt. This movie is perfect. And your piece, this movie could have been called Obstacles. And <laughs> you were an obstacle that on its, and it's the can it could be called obstacles. Your your character seemed like an easily negotiable obstacle. And then you were so many more obstacles after that, beginning with the dumpling in your mouth, ending with finding her real uh, ID and bringing her in. So it, it for me, what is so fitting about your character is it's this thing that we thought, oh, the feminine wiles, you know, she's the only female uh, woman in the film she'll be able to take care of this guy and know it's, and that's, what's great about this film is it's obstacle and obstacle and obstacle. Even there's no straight, the only straightforward path is the beginning when they sneak into the bank. And even then it's, it's a flip. There's so many bits, right? Carl, you know, it's always the green one. He cuts, he cuts it. Yeah. The lights go out. <laughs> Good one, Carl. Or like Redford tries to jump over the bank teller's counter and falls, yeah. which is one of the funniest things ever. So, and, and then that moment, the, the, and the camera itself is a sneaker, right? Phil does such an amazing job of always being in, in movement. So that moment you're talking about with the dog, we start on you with the finger, we follow the dog. He doesn't cut. He drops the camera to place you know, he's always, it's all sleight of hand thematically from the first thing with Cosmo sending Martin out for pizza all through the film. Uh, and, and he direct, he's always directing our focus to the license. And then he doesn't cut there. He goes back to you looking to her each, each, he does so many long takes, like the one that you did 43 of, right. <laughs> is you, it it's on a with, it's on a it's a crane shot too, right? It's a crane it's a shot crane. out. The, it's a crane out the window, and Dan Aykroyd is standing on the hood of the car, yeah. catching the ID. It's all about triangulation, right? It's constant revelation of deeper layers of the sleight of hand. It's through a window, so we're voyeuristic, but then it pans out to show the secret intention, and then pans up. And then one of my favorite things that Phil chose was 
he follows the car away and we get to see where Werner lives. Yeah. It's this perfect yeah, this track condo <laughs> yeah, I love cookie that. cutter place. And he gives you one final characterization. I mean, it's masterful. So I believe you coming in at page 68 makes total sense. And it's perfect. The obstacle with an obstacle fortune cookie from the David China. Strathairn. David yeah. Strathairn yeah, David. and a, a cocktail party. Yes. And, yes. and you know, the, the, you know, how is it that this blind person taking a fish out of water to where he even has to drive the damn car, <laughs> yeah. yet, you know, he's blind, yet at the same time, he's able to sense something that other people can't because yes. he can't see. It's amazing. He gives him the funniest line in the whole movie to me. I mean, Carl is my favorite character. We'll get to that. But yeah. the funniest line in the whole movie is, uh, in five seconds, stop. <laughs> Whistler, <laughs> cut to Whistler slamming into the wall of the truck and just going, I think I'll stop right here. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the best bit ever. Well, I want to tag one really quick thing, and I'll throw it over to Chris Steven, which is like, that complication and that obstacle, I'm such an aficionado of heist movies. Obviously, my favorite movie of all time is Heat. And I love, um, but I do love jigsaw heist movies like your Oceans movies. And I particularly love Logan Lucky because it's just messier. And the thing about that is you love to see, and, and funny like things in uh, the Oceans movies is like, going to buy a van and Bernie Mac is shaking a man's hand really hard to negotiate the right yeah. price to a van and continues to squeeze his hand. You could have, Stephen, Werner Brandis in Sneakers could have totally been that guy that is just like squeezed out by the main character. You walk out. It's a nice thing to be in this great ensemble. Fantastic. But what is so brilliant is yeah. that when an obstacle that is the easiest, right? They've just established, and I'll get to the other obstacles. They've just established that Werner is the easy one. Really. It's like, she'll, uh, she's going to be fine. She's going to get this out of this guy. We're totally, totally fine. Liz is more than formidable but you actually make the entire end heist more problematic now the other things the voice sensor mm -hmm. and the right. motion sensor is a full count them one two three four five years before those exact things are used in one of the most famous action set pieces ever committed to celluloid in a little film called Mission, Mission Impossible. Impossible, directed by yes. Brian De Palma. The exact yeah. same temperature control mechanism happens in Mission. The exact same laser array, the exact same pressure sensitive to sound. It is all exactly lifted from the blueprint that Sneakers sets. And what's so cool about Sneakers is that those things that are impossible, walking across the room in polystyrene or having the temperature up at the right thing and not making a sound like, uh, you, Bish, you better hurry. I just hurrying is the last <laughs> thing I can do. Yeah. Like all of that is the flip side. And you, your character becomes like the foil that nearly kills this entire sneak. And it is just, I, I love that after all of that establishing of technology, it's the human element being your mm -hmm. character that establishes that. And I just think I can't, I can't sell that anymore. And I've recently spoke to the boys on the Light the, Feud pod, uh, Light the Fuse podcast, which is the Mission Impossible podcast. And I was talking about this and I, 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 I knew I was going to talk about Sneakers, so I didn't give them this, this take, but I'm like, Sneakers did Mission five years before. I was thinking that when I was rewatching yeah, it. This I have is that Mission Impossible, <laughs> but analog, it's like, <laughs> yes. yeah. 
it's analog versus digital. Marty's crew is human int, like human intelligence versus <laughs> yeah. signal intelligence. Yes. Werner is part of Cosmos clean, isolated, cold digital world before like the warmth and family of mother and Kreese, who is definitely the dad of the family. And they're kind of chaotic, messy, bungling, wire-based analog world and they're both coming at this answer of who is good and who is bad together. It's, it's brilliant. There's, uh, I remember Jonathan Demme told me one thing that's always stuck with me too. He says in terms of directing, 90% is casting. Yes. Uh, in film directing. And it's like, it was, Sneakers was a terrific cast, but, but in particular, Robert Redford, Sidney Poitier, and Mary, what those performers, and, and certainly Ben, but Ben's in a different position. Certainly what those three performers can do so easily, which a lot of times these movies don't have, is consequences. You feel mm. emotional consequences. You feel the fear. You feel the idea we could fail from Robert Redford or Sidney Poitier without them doing anything. So there's something at stake when Mary McDonald is, is, you know, when Cosmo's going like her, go out with him, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you could, and when she's caught by me, the humility, like her cheeks blushed, you know, she's one of these actors that doesn't have to act it. She just is, she carries the cons real world consequences of what she's doing while the camera's rolling and the camera sees that and that's why redford so brilliant as the leading character in this he's a perfect our perfect guide through this whole thing because we see even with his sense of humor we we see there's big consequences to what we're doing right. and that's one thing that sets this movie apart is you you take it seriously as it's going along, you know, it isn't just like a heist film where you go like, oh, well, eventually they'll drive too fast and bump into cars, but everyone will be okay, you know, and they'll get out on the other end. of it. No, there, there's consequences to everything. I fully agree with that. I think that, like, I even had written that this was like a precursor, and it's funny, we're talking about the Ocean's Eleven, and it, it definitely, I think the film does a really good job at satisfying that, like, desire to see our characters make it through, and, and we're feeling for them, and, and what it does that you know the other films that don't happen i have this kind of theory with filmmaking and writing and music and there's like a time at which technology and craft kind of all meet at certain points and and when this film was made at this time you know filmmaking was a specific way a certain way and and it allowed you like i've talked about with other films that we've been talking about you get to live in the movie a bit more we're not editing around too much we're not jumping around a lot more so in a sense, you are getting to feel and have the human, you know, characteristics. It isn't, you know, no knock on Mission Impossible, but Mission Impossible is this different animal when it comes mm -hmm. to what we're watching. So it does have this very analog kind of heist film feel to it. Um, but I also think that that's in the sense of the ability to like watch all of these scenes take place. And, and also to just kind of comment what we've been talking about. Yeah, every character in this film could lead a film. You know, and, 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 and it's just packaged together in a way where we're getting to watch all these incredible actors work together and 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 do a fun movie. You don't get that that often. Um, and I think that that's what is always so great about Sneakers. 
Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Um, you know, and, and also just to parlay it a little bit, um, the score in this movie is oh. awesome. And it is haunting and beautiful and fun and funny and keeps you moving. You know, I think it's a soprano saxophone that is being played... Uh, and and it is just the other voice kind of guiding you through the whole film and and i love how that tone doesn't change you know it, it also the fun the movie does have some fun moments like uh, just from a score standpoint it does have the like dun 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 the piano kind of <laughs> like you know and and but i was watching going like this movie has all of the the tropes that that movies had at that time but it i feel like it was the first one to do it you know, or, or it just, it, it's, it, it didn't feel forced by any means. It felt authentic while I was watching it. And, and, and in that case, I just thoroughly enjoyed the rewatch on this. I just, it's such a fun movie. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back with our two favorite scenes. All right, Mr. Steven Tobolowsky. I'm going to put the pressure on you because I'm so excited to just hear you've done the film, you've watched it, you've performed in it, you've obviously revisited it, but do you have two favorite scenes in the movie? I, I do. Now, as the work of art, as the film itself, two, yeah, I have two favorite scenes, which Sid Phils would go nuts over because they completely <laughs> violate the protocol. Uh, when they... <laughs> first come back to the office, the CIA office, about 10 or 12 minutes into the movie or whatever it is, and it's not there. Yes. yes. You know, and it's like, what? They took away my home. Help me out. Government took away my home. Oh my God. <laughs> and then uh, the Scrabble board, pulling out the Scrabble board and SeaTac astronomy or whatever, and then shuffling the letters around. And I first saw this movie, first, Phil screened it at the Academy and uh, over on Wilshire. And, you know, everybody's sitting in the, you know, it was. I think it was the Academy. It was either right next to the Academy. It was right by the right on Wilshire Boulevard. And and so we're having, when that scene happened with the with the uh, Scrabble board and the letters coming together, no more secrets, there was this 
oh, from an audience. <laughs> now, whenever you get a verbal oh at a movie that isn't just like a gut punch of a scream of somebody jumping out, oh, but if it's an idea that, that stirs you to sound while you're watching a movie and you know that there's too many secrets and the oh. audience went, oh, oh. It was chilling. Those two scenes were my favorite. Right dead in my eyes. See tech. What? See tech astronomy. I just love it when a man says that to me. See tech doesn't mean anything. Excuse me. Get me uh, some cable and uh, I.O. interface, please. Monterey's Coast. Does Monterey's Coast mean anything to you guys? No. No. Diagnostics. How about my Socrates note? No. Those are great scenes. I, I, yeah, I, I just, I, yeah, I was thinking specifically. Have you been able to, have you been able to narrow down to Chris at all? Well, just on, on, on what you were talking about, there is one little thing I did pick up. There's so many details in this film. And I think that that, I mean, we'll get into why this is too much movie later, but, um, 
there's artwork outside of the um there's street art by this artist Robbie Connell that's on the outside of the building and he does this local Los Angeles wheat paste art and he was very early on in regards to political satire and whatnot and he's on the outside of the building um I think it's like a melted face of whoever was the president at the time but, George Bush talk yeah. to him it's that great yeah. line where Redford's uh, Bish yeah, talk, in and goes, to him. Talk, talk to him and I thought that was such a nice little nod um, to an, you know, the the time and the temperature of the world because it's it's not a political film, but it it, it does kind of live in a world where there were things going on. And um, for me to narrow down to, I mean, I think I'm just gonna have to go to the scene right after Scrabble when they are, um, it's it's creepy, and it's you know when they're going through that hard drive, and they're uh, it, it's, yeah. it's, it, it's creepy, and it's like. Ooh, yeah, it's that? like very like <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. You wanna you wanna uh, crash a couple uh, Air Forty Seven, you know, Seven Forty Seven planes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That scene. You won't get in. It's encrypted. See, mother, that last contact. Shut down the Federal Reserve. <laughs> hey, 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 don't wait, screw wait, around wait, with that please. thing. Carl, what else you got? National power grid. <laughs> okay. Here we come. Traffic control system. Mm. Okay, mother. Oh, my God. How is this possible? Cryptography systems are based on mathematical problems so complex they cannot be solved without a key. Janik must have figured out a way to solve those problems without the key, and he hardwired it into that chip. Turn it off. Anybody want to crash a couple of passenger jets? I turn it off. Turn it off. To Stephen's point, Portier saying, "Turn it off." Like mm -hmm. him <laughs> saying, yeah. "Turn it off." Like you're like, yeah. <gasps> like it comes from this elemental, like middle of your spine level him saying that you can just feel the tension go oh god like dad's talking i'm yeah. in trouble like and you almost feel it through the screen i i can't disassociate those two things for me if i had to say like what i'll talk about my second favorite scene but i just want to tag both steven and chris and just say that entire post-party sequence where it's like the adults are playing scrabble and the kids are getting up to mischief with their new toy I think it is maybe one of the most perfect sequences almost in any film. It is so flawless in shooting, in the reflections off of the glasses and hearing the efforts they had to go to to get Strathan, the efforts he went into to play blind, like the technology at the time, like 
the, the alchemy of Mother, like Dan Aykroyd, and his great craziness, and River Phoenix, and Stan, and the way they're bouncing off, and yeah. even the fact that Stephen a couple of times has said, like, just has said an early, he didn't intend to do this, but it was originally no more secrets. But when Phil Alden Robinson got a Scrabble board and tried to make anagrams with no more secrets, it didn't work. So in uh, the original script, it was No More Secrets, which Stephen has read. <laughs> but he then found too many secrets and then went seek C-Tech Astronomy and that's how it was rewritten into the script and they did that. So just everything, the organic discoveries that Alden Robinson did, the 10 years that he did. I mean, the incredible, we haven't mentioned these two gentlemen yet, but I'm going to mention them both now. The absolutely outlandishly talented Lawrence Lasker and Walter Parks who both wrote, um, who, who've, I mean, they've, they've written basically everything. Um, so many things in their career, but like they wrote war games and then they wrote this movie for like 10 years with Phil Adam Robinson. And the the alchemy of this scene is one of my favorites. I'll get to my second favorite, remember. I just, I, I can't disassociate those two for me on that. What about you, Rob? Where are you, my friend? Well, and, and just, th it's so beautiful to see them working in the, with, Scrabble pieces under, you know, glass, underneath yes. that glass table shot. And, and on the other side of the room, they're using the most, uh, you know, evolved cryptography <laughs> that is available in the same room. Just the, the hybrid of both. It's incredible. And that it links to the very first thing we see in the film, yep. which is the credits being unscrambled yeah. to reveal who's in the film is like, Oh, it pulls the thread all the way through to where we don't know what's going to happen next. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I have so much I want to say, <laughs> and we don't have time. I, I mean, it's all about trust. Yeah. They talk about I'm trust. Gonna, I, I, I have to get to like your favorite scenes in just a second, but I just want to say we haven't okay. talked about this okay. scene. And I could watch this if I'm ever in a bad mood. There's only one scene in this movie I need to watch. And it's when Bishop goes into Yannick's office and he talks to Lee Garlington, who plays Dr. Alina Rishkoff oh, yeah, and the boys, Sidney Poitier and David Strathan are talking to him it's... on the earpiece. And he goes, I'll, 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 give you a reason. I'll give you a very good reason. And they're like, you're a private investigator. That entire exchange of them talking to him, the way it's shot, him talking to them and give him head whenever he wants and him saying, Give, I'm spoiling my favorite quote. Give him help whenever he wants. Be a beacon. <laughs> I, there is nothing, there is not a funnier scene almost in any movie ever. It is outlandishly hilarious. Who the hell is that? Battle stations. Monitor the audio. Grab the mic now. Okay. I'm going to remove my hand now. Please do not scream. I promise nothing is going to happen to you. Okay. Who oh, are you? He's a PI. You're a private investigator. I'm a private investigator. But why? Who hired you? Huh? Who hired you? Mrs. Janik. There is not Mrs. Janik. Uh. Yeah? Uh, you got us stumped. Oh, yeah? 
do you think paid for your little love job to Mexico City? <gasps> that was good. Velma. Velma Janik. She lives in Montreal where she handles her family's real estate holdings. Vast real estate holdings. Farms, banks, shopping malls. Two shopping malls. She supports Gunter, but figured he was cheating on her, and that's why she hired me. I'll kill him. Oh, no, 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 wait. No! No, no, no. Get a hold of yourself, Dr. Roscoe. Get a hold of yourself. Mm -mm. Now, what you got to do is you got to not tell him you know. <laughs> nope, we weren't here. We didn't talk. You don't know me. Oh. You don't know anything about a wife. Oh, you just give me one good reason why. All right, I'll give you a reason. Give you a really good reason. It's just what she would want you to do. It's just what she would want you to do. It's just what she wants you to do. I don't understand. Yeah, sometimes I don't understand myself. Here, look, I, I might lose my license for this, but my client is a vindictive, bitter woman. She's been withholding marital favors from Gunther for many, many years, and now she's out to ruin him. Uh, and she's using you to, to, to get to her. And she's using you, me to get to her, you. I know, I know that's confusing, but don't you see what's happening here? You and me, we're just pawns in this ugly little game. If you love him. If you love him. If you love him. If you really love him, then just keep on loving him. And never let him know that, that you know what he thinks you don't know, that you know. You know? And give him head whenever he wants. Give him he help. Be a, be, be a beacon in his sad and lonely life. Can you do that for Gunner? Yes, yes, I can. I can. Okay, good. Now get out of here. A beacon. <laughs> this movie packs so many bits yeah. per minute. Like he hides so many jokes, physical jokes, written jokes, uh, you know, play upon words. And and so many of them are based in character. Like every the way they treat Carl when they're watching the tape of Rishkov before Crease and Bishop, how they're they're watching her make first of all, that Donald Logue crosses his legs to sit at a yes. computer terminal is ridiculous <laughs> and and then and then um they're watching through the the telescope and they won't let river phoenix see because that's childish and immature but then you know chris really wants <laughs> yeah. to see it and that Rishkov moment is obstacle 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 i mean it's it's something that should be easy and it's not it's supposed to be empty there's a keypad the bit of listening to all those instructions and then just yes, kicking the door say, in. Yeah. To, it's like, it's incredible. And, and Phil Alvin Robinson does such a good job. Like you, you, you all were talking about of the technology and everything. He uses inserts on every piece of technology and shows us exactly what it is. And then we get to look through everything that the sneakers are looking through CCTV cameras, telescopes, listening devices, 
all the time. We experience it with them. And to your point, Chris, sound is such a huge part of the film. Whistler tells us, look, don't listen. look, listen. Oh, there you go. I mean, we're introduced to Liz with a piano concerto that is a, a child and not her. It's another piece of sleight of hand. We meet Greg at the symphony later. You know, the, the berms and the sound of it all. It's just... I don't know. I, I could go on and on. My favorite scene, though, always when I whenever I'm sad is always is the scene I sent you guys over text, which is just River <laughs> Phoenix being able to pick anything in the world, and the young lady with the Uzi. <laughs> yeah, uh, is she single? Carl, the young lady with the Uzi. She single? Uh, yeah, Carl. Excuse us, me. Yeah. Ring. Now you gotta think bigger thoughts. I just want a telephone number. How about a lunch? You can chaperone. No, I will not do this. Hey, Abby. Abby, come on. Now the FBI would give him twins. No! Wait a second. You can have anything you want. And you're asking for my phone number? Yes. 273-9164. Area code 415. I'm Carl. I'm Mary. I'm going to be sick. <laughs> it's the best thing ever. And I, I, I've been sending it to all my friends. It's so yeah, good. Yeah, he's amazing. You can chaperone a lunch. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, you could have anything in the world, and all you want is my phone number. Carl is adorable. Just, yes. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back to our two favorite characters. All right, I'm going to come back really quickly because Stephen Tobolowsky was gushed about frequently uh, by Phil Adam Robinson on the latest release. If you haven't already seen it, there is a release done by Plumeria um, and Film Stories, a special release of uh, Sneakers. It has that great uh, Scrabble tile, Too Many Secrets, great commentary tracks, great interviews. Oh, and nice. he, talk, he talks a lot about the you know, bottom of a monkey cage. He talks about Stephen saying, my vo voice is nasal and pinched. He talks about this like organic things. And he goes, one of the things he also did is he encouraged Dan Aykroyd to randomly come up with conspiracy theories when he's talking about, <laughs> when he's talking to other characters. And he said the one about the cow lips was an Aykroyd, not in the script, not in the script. And he's talking um, to, to Crease's wife in that moment, uh, played um, uh, by Ellerino. And he's talking to her about the cow lips and the CIA. And yes. that was an Aykroyd. That is an Aykroyd moment. And so that with that little tidbit, I'm going to say that one of my favorite characters in Sneakers is Mother because of course. he is the butt of many jokes. He, um, watching Chris say, I can't talk to him. Like, I just, I, I can't. just can't get enough. And the, the Aykroyd isms and the isms of this movie and all of the, the, the real true personality that every actor brings to it. But that one, when I rewatch it and you see Ellerino's face, as he's talking about Cowlitz and you yeah. know, she's never read a, a script, a line, a dialogue and that he's going to say to her that has anything to do with Cowlitz. 
I just can't, like, I don't even understand how to articulate how much joy it brings me for the shock that's on her face. Much like the great Mary McDonald when Mr. Tobolowsky, our a wonderful guest here, um, is, like, saying all these things to her and she's trying to act with attention or she's trying to, like, understand what she's going to say next in the context of every moment. So that's one of my favorites. Uh, Mr. Tobolowsky, do you, I mean, obviously we're probably going to say Werner Brandis, one of us, I know it's probably going to be me, but uh, do you have a favorite character here? You you talked about Mr. Portier, you talked about Strathan. Do you have a favorite character when you go back and watch it or, or is it too hard because you're too close to it? Well, you know, I love them all, but I I have a particular affinity for, for Ben. Kingsley. Yeah, Cosmo. Cosmo and... Uh, and and I think I was listening to you know to what you were saying, and and I think something that this movie did at the time was it did indicate that there is a force that is bigger than politics, mm. and and you know beforehand yes it was politics was always the most important thing, but but when you got to this movie you see oh there's this other thing that's happening that's bigger than anything than bigger than nations mm. and it is now today that's one thing that's current today is that high tech is and the abuse of technology i'm sorry cause could have shared this with me i know could have had the power i don't want it don't you know the places we can go with this yeah i do there's nobody there exactly the world isn't run by weapons anymore, or energy, or money. It's run by little ones and zeros, little bits of data. It's all just electrons. I don't care. I don't expect other people to understand this, but I do expect you to understand this. We started this journey together. It wasn't a journey, Cos. It was a prank. There's a war out there, old friend, a world war. And it's not about who's got the most bullets. It's about who controls the information. What we see and hear, how we work, what we think. It's all about the information. If I were you, I'd destroy that thing. Don't go. Don't go. You do what you have to do, Cause. But if you want to stop me, you'll have to pull the trigger. You won't know who to trust. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, uh, it was very, yeah. But Cosmo says what, in his big reveal, is like his message is still the same, but his technique is to destroy. I mean, what's wrong with the country, Marty? Money. I may able to crash the whole system, destroy all records of ownership. No more rich no people, people, no more poor people. And to that, it's so confusing that Redford says, you really are crazy. I mean, he wants to destroy everything, which is the villainy. You know, that's why he's got the Zeppelin crashing and the yes. shark swimming it's, in the aquarium. It's, it's, it's very like James Bond villain. Identifying <laughs> tech house. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But, you know, not knowing who to try and, and who, who are the good guys. The good guys are the sneakers because what they do with their successes is for the good of, of more people, as opposed to what he wants to do is tear everything down. Yeah. So and, and work for, you know, the mafia. Whatever. Yeah. 
It's a great point. Yeah. He's, he's a really interesting villain because he's a very sympathetic. Yeah. Guy. He, you, and you feel for him as well too. You know, I, one of the scenes that I, I just loved is the opening with it. And you, you know, with the two actors who play the younger versions of, of Redford and Kingsley. Right. Great, great casting. Great. Ca- yeah. I love, I also love it. I don't know about you, Stephen, but, um, and Chris, I love that you said that because I always bring this point up. Give young actors a chance to play like established people as the younger selves, because the, the especially the 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 show Yellow Jackets uh, from Karen Kusama is on at the moment, and they're playing over mm. multiple timelines, and so you see these wonderful actors playing across you know uh, different age ranges um, right now. And so, for example, um, you know, uh, um, I think it's Melanie. Melanie Linsky is, uh, is, is, you know, the older character. And then you've got like the younger characters playing across and they all are just doing such fantastic work, like riffing on each other. And so I I love that. And the guy they cast as Redford is like a banger Redford. Like he's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. It, 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 it's a, it's a great scene. And, and I think you, it, 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 it allows you when you come to know Ben Kingsley and again, Ben Kingsley kind of shows up around the same time as your character does. He's maybe a few pages before you in the, in the script, but um, he, you, it's like, you know, he's the bad guy, but you feel for him because he was in prison forever. And, and it's, it's this, it, you know, to Rob's point too, he's, he's, you can't, you're not sure really what to think of him, but then at the end, he kind of sells himself by saying, you know, let's burn it all down. And there's problems with that mindset. Right. And, uh, but that, but it's still sympathetic. And I, again, that's what just this film is so subtle and it's finesse and, and, and kind of getting you to feel for both sides of the character. I mean, you got to feel for a guy with a pony. <laughs> well, <laughs> I just, I, I get, well, I could go off on the style of the film because it's just, it's, it's perfect. But I, I have to, I do, we've mentioned him before and, and what for, you know, my favorite character is, is easily, again, uh, David Strathairn as Whistler. I just think he's uh, just, uh, you know, so funny and so poignant and has my favorite lines, which you'll hear later, but um, also, again, uh, up to doing a task that maybe isn't something that's happening this day and age, but playing someone who can't see and just does it so beautifully and and uh, is able to add humor and nuance and also sensitivity to it. So I just I just so enjoy watching that character, um, you know, and the sneakers are ragtag. You know, they're kind of this. The, they still are. They're this, you know. They're the, the, the funky crew who's got the loft office and, you know, uh, they're the ones it's, it's just, yeah. Your, your, your team is, I know, kind of different. <laughs> the, the office is great because they're, they're both, pl- they're all performance. Their office is above a theater and Cosmo's office is in a toy company, oh. right? So he plays with things and they collaborate and perform together. It's just a very interesting dichotomy there. But Whistler is interesting too, because the first time we see his motivation, he says, I'm in it for the money. I don't care if you go to jail, (laughs) I'm in. We know he's kidding, but in the end, he's the only one who doesn't want anything other than Liz, of course. Peace on earth. He he says, will toward men. Good will toward men. I'll see what I can do. Rob, what's who's your favorite character? I think I know. Uh, It's Carl. I mean, the the unsung hero of the whole show is Carl. I I I love them all for all the reasons you all said, especially the uh, Poitier's ability to play through so many 
difference, the persona that he brought to that uh, role historically and in terms of his performance, Redford, who is a, you know, pretty radical guy playing a pragmatic radical, but Carl is like, he's the toughest to figure out. He's adorable. He's so funny. He plays it so straight. All of his lines are bangers to save, me. Save um, it for the and- next segment. Save it for the next one. We want to hear your impressions of Carl. Okay. Next I just want to say, and I'm just going to gush it, I guess, really quickly. My my probably equal favorite, favorite character is Werner Brandis. And it's not yeah. for the funny. It's It's everything to do with what we've already talked about, but it's one thing. It's you in silhouette, Stephen, in the doorway when Liz is on the phone. The menace. Hello, you, you Doris. Descri- you described <laughs> yeah. it as, you know, messing with you where you lived and that motivation and that potential, you know, that, that, that the stakes drastically increasing in that moment, but that silhouette of you standing there, it's nothing like the guy we've seen at any point to that moment. The flurry of the finger is one thing, but you standing there, let's go for a drive and your delivery. I we're almost there. Not get enough of it. It's, it's truly brilliant. But you say we go for a ride, Doris. It it was and, and again you take a look at the way he shot it. It was almost like the whole dinner in the kitchen is shot in all of this light. Yes. And then the dog is in shadows. Sort of, you know, you have light coming through the back door, and then you have me really in silhouette in the doorway when, when, I, when I come in. And the whole scene moves from light to shadow mm. in a way. And as actors, we weren't really aware of it that much. It just seemed like a natural environment the the home the apartment seemed like oh the lighting is normal but then you see the movie and it's very telling very dramatic that that it goes from the bright to the dark is very cool yeah and i loved also i know i know we talked about it but it was a line that did stand out was was you talking about the the bottom of a monkey cage and again (laughs) it reminded me of that time um, you know, I was a kid, obviously, but kind of observing from my, my mom and dad, but, you know, everyone talking about diets and, and, uh, things and ways to eat. And, and again, it just, I'm going, oh, it's, it's so reminiscent of today. And I think about that often, how a lot of these things from the past are still circling around us. Um, but I just, I, I and how sad yeah. he was when he said, <laughs> I overcooked. <laughs> I, I also just, I want to say it too, because it's a senior in as well. And it, it really grabs me, but the band that's playing in the dim sum restaurant was so it's such a fun way to start uh, establishment of where we're at. Oh, we're at this funky. It was it in San Francisco. Is that where it's, it was it like Chinatown in San Francisco. Is that the location? I yeah. Guess. It was just such a fun yeah. way to start that scene. And you know, I was just, it really, it really grabs me. You know, who, it just it so goes with your character is just about to shovel you know dumplings in his mouth and you know i just so relatable so relatable yeah i i uh yeah just again it it was a your character was just so fun to watch well let's take a quick break and then we'll come back with our two favorite quotes 
Rob Belushi, my favorite impressionist on our show. Give me some of your favorite quotes. You better quotes. not take mine. You better I, not I, take I, mine. I, 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 come on. I, I, I need to know. You know yeah. what it is. I mean, there's a couple. There, you know, I took it. They're all Carl lines. I took it from Mother's Wallet. When Carl's <laughs> with the Drano, I might lose my job. <laughs> uh, there she is, late as okay, usual. Okay, well, it states right here very clearly that I am to deliver 36 boxes of liquid drainage Look, to this here address. I don't care what that says. You you're not on the list. You can't get in. I do have Understood. a problem with you. You can't Understood. get in. I might lose my job. Well, it's not my problem. Kid, okay, I'll beat it, all right? No but the, my favorite line of the whole movie is between Chris Candy's buddy, uh, Whistler, and Carl when they're trying to figure out their own version of SeaTac astronomy and, and <laughs> they collaborate with special extraterrestrial earthling counter <laughs> they high five it's just a small nugget of the fun of these characters chris let's go um yeah i was uh, i i have to say uh, my two favorite lines are janet's little black box is on his desk between the pencil jar and the lamp uh whistler i i hate to tell you this but you're blind Play the tape back again. You can't even see anything. Don't look. Listen. Play it back. Don't look. Listen. We've said that one. <laughs> and um, and I also love the line, who else is going to change the world, Marty? Uh, which so is, is such a good villain line. You know, who else is going to change the world, Marty? And um, again, like I think that there is this kind of, brotherly relationship between Redford and uh, Ben Kingsley that's going on one went one way one went the other way and for them to, to yeah. get back at each other and and not skip a beat is just so awesome so yeah I love that line mm -hmm. Stephen do you have any favorite lines besides some of your great lines in this I <laughs> yeah. mean his voice is so nasal and pinched is literally an all-timer mm -hmm. like it's like 10 yeah. out of 10 great piece of improv it, it, it's just such a delightful amazing film and, and i'll tell you one thing that's always difficult is to make each character have their own voice yes that's one hard thing for screenwriters to do is that a lot of times the voices really kind of overlap in in this but in this movie everybody has their own voice and the the own always the kind and it probably comes from phil saying like to dan Aykroyd, you know bring in this stuff or bring, you know, he lets everybody right. go in the direction that they want to go in. But it's, it's a special movie that way. Unpredictable. I will say on that point too, I, to what you're talking about with like Dan Aykroyd as well. Like he definitely brings his, his, his flair. Each actor brings their strength. You know, I get that second city improv energy from, you know, Dan in the movie with his timing. I just, you know, I, I pick it up. I'm, I'm obviously a little aware of it more so, but it's like, I can see it strongly in all the characters and their skill sets and what they're bringing, you know, with Sidney Poitier and his kind of command of the screen. Um, I think when we're talking about lines, you know, everyone, has, owns their lines, I think, and, and owns it uniquely, which is a really awesome quality of a film. I just want to say I, my fight. I'm an excellent marksman <laughs> woman. What should the gun is shaking is another great one. 
20 years in the electric chair is another great one. Or uh, what I'd like a Winnebago. <laughs> yeah. And, and speaking to your voice, uh, Steven, like he does, he gives each character a chance to dance with Liz in their own way, which totally yeah. characterizes them. And then they all get to answer what they're going to do with the money. And then they all get to have that moment with Abbott where they all get the thing that they yeah, want. <laughs> so they each have their moment to have their own voice as part of the group. There's so many funny lines. Like truly, I think one of my favorites ever is be a beacon. Um, mm -hmm. I just love, love that yeah. beat, be a beacon, um, in this in sad and lonely life. I just love that so much, but the one line, and we haven't talked enough about the great and now dearly departed Sidney Poitier, the, when he turns to camera and it's the close up, and he says, there isn't a government on this planet that wouldn't kill us all for that thing. Oh yeah. That speaking of resonance yes. now, uh, I just go, this movie is so scarily in front of everything that we experience these days about the ability to manipulate online environments and hack things and those things. But just like his, his pr like pragmatic and certain delivery and gravity that comes out of his mouth when he says that, I'm just like, I can't believe it, how good that delivery is. Something that Phil, Phil does that, that is, I think, just absolutely unique and great is most writers understand that the story we really want to hear is the hero's journey. However you cut it up, you know, whether it's Lord of the Rings or whatever, we want the hero's journey when we go to a movie. Phil understands the hero's journey to where even Cosmo is, is a hero. You know, and, and, we, and he, it's like herding cats is, is what he does in his films, is yeah. you have all of these different people trying to be a hero in their own way. And we get, as an audience, the joy and the gravitas of taking that hero's journey with all of them, mm. which is which very few writers can do. He, he's amazing that way. Phil. Well, and they, they, when, Martin Bishop, when Martin Bishop slash Bryce says to Liz, I'm sorry, no, I'm sorry, we have that moment before the final set piece where he is now facing his shame and guilt from you know 20 years before and he has become accountable he wants to get his name back in order to do that he must pay the price for his past transgressions yeah. and it's a movie about humans with frailties and vulnerabilities instead of that's what makes them super they're superheroes that are bonded by all of their what would be deemed as weaknesses if they were alone you know and it's the best ragtag caper film ever <laughs> yeah. to be made. Yeah. I, I don't know how to conclude it in any other way than that. That is so perfect. I, I firstly, I mean, from the bottom of Rob, Chris and I's heart, Stephen, to have you chat to us about this movie and to hear those insights, it is like joyful beyond belief this is one of the movies i remember seeing in the theater with my dad it was like it's and it's the the daddest movie of all time can i say as a, as a dad it's the daddest movie of all time and my dad wanted to see this one remember, yeah. <laughs> it's the daddest movie and the, the most memorable the most memorable line in this whole movie for anyone who's seen it is my name is werner brandis my, my voice is my passport verify me <laughs> It's it. So having you on this show is just a joy. And just like 
thank you, thank you. For thank every, you. not for just this movie, but for every movie that you've just been completely outstanding in, thank you. Thank you for being a part of the show. Well, thanks a lot for asking. Thanks. It's fun to talk about the movie again. Hi, this is Blake Howard, host and producer of One Heat Minute Productions podcast. We dive into the great and underappreciated cinematic works, often one minute or one scene at a time. Our crew of guests are some of the most wonderful filmmakers, writers, authors, and critics ever assembled. Our shows include One Heat Minute, Josie and the Podcats, All the President's Minutes, Increment Vice, and right now, Zodiac Chronicle. Check out oneheatminute.com or find us wherever you get your podcasts.